You're listening to Cancer Covered. At the end of the day, you have to be honest with your patient. You, you can't candy coat anything. Something that drives me absolutely crazy is someone that doesn't want to have that difficult conversation with a patient. You can have a difficult conversation, but then say, look, we can't cure your disease based on XYZ, but here are treatment options I'm going to have you go talk to Dr. Burnett about or talk to Dr. Winkler about. So you can be honest and give an honest prognosis, but still give some hope. You're listening to Cancer Covered with Green Bay Oncology, where we explore pressing cancer issues and look for ways healthcare professionals, patients, and their families can cope better together. I'm Dr. Mitch Winkler. Though individual cancer patients have unique emotional needs, almost all of them set a high priority on preserving hope. And so do cancer doctors. Hope is a critical component of emotional well-being, and the absence of hope contributes to depression, isolation, and poor clinical and social outcomes. Hopelessness is thought to increase the risk of everything from workplace dissatisfaction to drug addiction and suicide. But many of us define hope differently. And sometimes hope seems to be at odds with honesty, especially when things like prognosis and incurability come up. It used to be that doctors avoided prognostic discussions altogether or actively deceived their patients with the goal of preserving hope. But as a study from the 2012 Journal of General Internal Medicine clearly showed, the vast majority of patients want their doctors to make it clear to them if time is growing short so they can make informed choices about how to spend that time. But doing that isn't easy because almost no one is ready to accept when that time comes, no matter our age, our life situation, or our faith. So how can we simultaneously serve both of these imperatives, to be honest and to preserve hope? In today's episode, I talk with Dr. Brian Burnett, a medical oncologist, hematologist, and Dr. Michael Gayu, a radiation oncologist, to explore this important but thorny issue and provide some clarity on what hope means, why it doesn't have to conflict with honesty. At least, that's what we're hoping. A very, very regular question that comes up from patients, if they have stage four not curable disease, doctor, how long am I going to live? 80, 90% of doctors out there, I don't think they answer that question correctly. Correct way to answer that is, I don't know. There's been studies that have been done that have looked at what a doctor estimated somebody's life expectancy to be and how long they lived. And we're very bad at making that. The average survival for this cancer at this stage is 12.4 months. Okay, so the patient asks you, how long will I live? And doctor responds to them, well, average survival is 12.4 months. You've just done that patient a great disservice. Nobody's, one person in a hundred is that average survival. I think we can do a much better job talking to patients about that. About a third of patients are going to do poorly. They're not going to respond to treatment. They're going to likely perish within a year. About a third of patients will respond okay, tolerate treatment well, and at some point, their cancer will get a little bit worse. So the final one-third of patients get some treatment. Cancer melts away, and it stays under very good control for a long period of time. They may actually stop treatment for a while. And at some point, cancer gets worse, and they start a new treatment, and it works again. 
and they're down the road more than three or four years, sometimes five or even 10 years. When we talk about things in that fashion, first of all, I admit that I don't know which one of those three groups a single patient is going to wind up in. Secondly, I can set the expectation that there's a one in three chance things are going to do poorly. You need to make sure you get your affairs in order. Don't put off till tomorrow what you could be doing today. But at the same time, because there's a one in three chance you're going to be in that final one third of patients, there's plenty of room for hope. We need to prepare for the worst. We can still be hopeful that we're going to be one of those one third of patients living well, three, four, five, or even 10 years down the road. But putting that time and investment into patient care at the beginning can really set the expectation down the road. And you can use that information to adjust those expectations. I, I think I approach it a little bit differently than Brian does. One of the things he used to specialize in was brain cancers. And unfortunately, the third your third rule doesn't apply. If you've got someone who has a, an aggressive brain cancer, you kind of need to tell them most people live 12 to 15 months, regardless of what we do, because the patient needs to know that. Yes, there's always exceptions. Yeah, right? absolutely. Statistics and survival curves are valuable because they can give doctors and patients ballpark estimates of what an average person might expect. But because these statistics come from research studies, which usually consist of the fittest and healthiest patients, these curves often apply poorly to cancer patients in the real world, and not in a good way. Cancer is more common in the elderly, and patients who are already debilitated or afflicted by multiple other medical problems generally do much worse than average. The other place that I think physicians come up short is applying a median survival curve to a research population, which is by definition reasonably fit and healthy. And when people come in the door diagnosed with advanced stage disease and are bed fast and can't function on their own, that we don't take the estimate and apply it to them and their circumstance appropriately because pretending or forgetting, which is probably more accurate, that the median does not apply to this particular patient who is so sick from their cancer that we do patients a disservice there too. And we frequently underprepare patients. And I think in many of the situations, we can drastically overestimate the potential benefits of treatment when people are already so sick walking in the door. It's widely believed by the public and even by some doctors that clear and honest discussions about prognosis and preservation of hope are in terminal conflict with each other. What would you say to that, Michael? I don't know if I agree. At the end of the day, you have to be honest with your patient. You, you can't candy coat anything. Something that drives me absolutely crazy is someone that doesn't want to have that difficult conversation with a patient. You can have a difficult conversation, but then say, look, we can't cure your disease based on X, Y, Z, but here are treatment options I'm going to have you go talk to Dr. Burnett about or talk to Dr. Winkler about. So you can be honest and give an honest prognosis, but still give some hope. I don't. I think false hope is one of the worst things we can give people. Why? Because we need to be honest with our patients. It's we have an open and honest relationship with our patients, and once you start giving them information that it's not that that you violate that trust, they're not gonna they're not gonna trust you. 
people deserve trust. They deserve honesty. They, yeah. they deserve us being forthright with them and yeah. telling them what we think and what we know. Are there any bad clinical results that happen when we are less than honest with our patients about their prognosis or overstate the potential benefits of treatment? I would just say results, not clinical results. For instance, somebody that has a bad cancer in their 70s and they've got grandkids that they want to see and things that they want to go and do, if we feel it highly likely based upon a number of factors that person's going to probably be gone within a few weeks or within a month or two, but the patient's perception is that they will be around a year or two, they may not get to say goodbye to their family members that mean the most to them. There's opportunities at the end of life that if people understand when it's on the horizon that they can take advantage of and that they can grow from and that they can leave a legacy for their remaining family members, if we're not honest with patients, we take that away. And it's terrible. If somebody looks like they're heading out of this world, then they have an opportunity to spend one last time with the people that mean the most to them and they weren't aware that time was short, boy, you just cost them a lot. But we can't yeah. salvage those moments and the opportunities if we have yeah. the opportunity to if we're anything less than completely honest. Communicating with patients about prognosis and helping them set expectations for the future is complex and emotionally challenging for patients and doctors alike, and is much more than a single conversation at a single point in time. It's a process that requires meticulous attention throughout the relationship and often requires multiple people to achieve. One thing that we've all done in our careers is help a patient realize that we're at the end of that journey, that there's no more treatments we can offer, there's no more chemo, there's no more radiation, and it's time to shift focus to a hospice or palliative care. And that's a big step. I mean, we've been, especially you've been fighting alongside them for months or years and you develop this relationship, it's that trust that they're going to have in you to say, okay, I trust you. I, you've been honest with me every step of the way. I trust you now that it's time. Do you think that there are cancer patients out there who either because they've not been given a clear or honest picture of their prognosis and the potential benefits of treatment, or they have not integrated it, who would make treatment decisions that are different if they had received an honest assessment? Uh, the pros and cons or yeah i mean you can many times spend thousands and thousands of dollars for things that have no data behind them uh, oftentimes it can take you away from family you have to travel to these places and so it, it can do irreparable harm both financial emotional social harm physical harm physical harm too absolutely absolutely No one should carry the burden of cancer alone. And while every physician approaches cancer with their own unique skill set, we all agree on this one simple idea. Hi, I'm Dr. Gayu, a physician at Green Bay Oncology. The truth is, a cancer diagnosis can make you and your loved ones feel isolated and overwhelmed. 
and these moments are exactly when you need support the most. That's why all our doctors rely on the support of our team of qualified medical professionals. And here's two of them. Hi, I'm Madison Young. And I'm Tom Beckers. As social workers, we see how meaningful connection brings strength and healing to patients and loved ones facing cancer every single day. Our patients and physicians agree, sharing your experience in a safe space with others is powerful and therapeutic. That's why we offer a free monthly virtual and in-person cancer support group facilitated for you wherever you are on your cancer journey. So whether by internet, phone, or in person, you'll have access to the support of a community on a similar path. To join us, visit gboncology.com and click on support. You know, when we're having these honest discussions with patients, it's important to also understand that it's a evolving discussion over time. These aren't just one-time conversations. When Michael talks about helping people at the end of life, that's most oftentimes not the first time we've talked to them about that. Been preparing that them and building that trust over time because there is a time in somebody's life, especially in their cancer journey, that if they're being managed with a treatment strategy that controls the cancer for an extended period of time, at some point it's going to stop working. And at some point, there's going to be what I would call an inflection point where stopping cancer treatments will allow most likely the patient to live a bit longer and a bit better than if he or she continued their cancer care. And it's important to, to have that conversation before patients get to that point. Ma'am, things seem to be going okay right now, but at a time at which this treatment may fail you, we're starting to run out of tools in the toolbox, and I'm not sure you're going to be healthy enough to get more treatment. And when that time comes, we're going to be honest with you, and I'm going to tell you that you probably live longer and live better without doing more treatment for this. So these aren't one-time conversations. It's a relationship that develops over time, and it doesn't have to be with just one provider. They can be multiple different providers. There used to be a belief among physicians, a fairly entrenched belief, that you'll still find traces of from time to time that talking about end of life or being open and clear about prognosis was actively harmful to people because it extinguished hope. Why don't we think that anymore? Because it's a bunch of garbage. Clearly. <laughs> I mean, that, that perspective goes hopefully back to historical standards of Doctors being almost universally men and being paternalistic and telling patients what their recommendation is, and you can take it or leave it. And my perspective is the most important perspective, and I will tell you what to do, and I will make these judgments. That's not good enough anymore. We need to understand our patients. We need to allow them to make their own decisions on what they want to hear, what they need to hear, and what choices they want to make in their own health care. It's a human right. It's dignity. Yeah. I look at my role now as an educator. So I come in, I educate you. I make, I give you options. I'm not going to tell you what you have to do. I'll tell you that if you're going to choose my therapy, that this is what we'll do. This is what to expect. This is the toxicity. This is the outcome. And then I guide you through that process. And I think that's very different than generations ago, where if physicians were expected to do that, it wouldn't be something they could 
they would want to do. And I think that, I think there's just been a cultural change. I think in a good way, I think in a good way that we're sort of a partner with the patient. We're not the, we're not the general leading the army. We're there alongside them, walking them through this. Not my will, but thine be done. Mm -hmm. That was hard to live by even when it was written. And it's sometimes hard for us to remember in medicine, but we're in a service industry. And if it's something that we can reasonably accommodate, it's the patient's choice, not ours. No one is ever ready to turn that corner where they can clearly see the end of the road not far ahead. And sometimes patients insist that things aren't how they appear or a detour will appear. And it's at these times when patients sometimes insist on preserving a very specific version of hope at the expense of awareness and preparation. And this is one of the hardest spots for patients and their doctors to find themselves in. From time to time, a patient with clearly incurable disease will demand of us the assurance that they can survive their cancer. And they'll usually phrase it something like this. It is not your place to extinguish my hope for cure. When at the same time, we carry the burden of knowledge that there is no realistic possibility that they can survive their cancer. First, is that a conundrum you've run into in practice? And second, how do you deal with it? One thing we've learned the past several years is that many people have very, very strong opinions about a variety of subjects. That's in the clinic too, just like it's out in the community, just like it's in politics and medicine elsewhere. There's going to be some people that have very, very strong beliefs that you will not change. Try to nudge them a little bit. And if somebody has a life expectancy of a few weeks and they expect you to cure their cancer, sorry, that's highly unlikely. It's okay for you to believe that, but I think that's pretty unlikely. Not impossible, but highly, highly unlikely. And then you'll get a sense on whether or not they're willing to explore their feelings and their perspectives a little bit more. If they open up and say, oh, really? Tell me more about that. Keep on going. Make sure you're completely honest and forthright with them. The first thing I try to remember is that there's no real conflict between what the patient's hoping for, cure of their disease and survival, and what I'm hoping for them. But I think the confusion lies in that all of their hopes are piled into this limited and imperfect toolbox that we have. I can only be honest and must be honest about what the powers of the tools that we possess are. I would never mean to suggest that that is the deterministic beginning and end of all that is possible. People will talk about miracles, and I will absolutely support their belief in and hope for a miracle. But at the same time, it should be perfectly explicit that if we have no therapies, a miracle needs no intervention on my part because we are not the ones that deliver miracles. Miracles come, if you believe in them, from elsewhere. The other place that I think if we unpack what people are getting at or what they mean by hope is 
that we are not in conflict with patients about wanting to preserve hope. We are simply suggesting that while hope can and always should and must exist, that it is not reasonable for us to always demand that hope only come in one form. When we overly, narrowly define hope, meaning the only source of hope for me is cure and survival long-term, I would suggest that that is such an impoverished definition and limitation of what hope really is in life, that it is so impoverished that there is, in fact, no hope for all of us because hope has to be bigger than disease and mortality, and hope has to have wings. And by that, I mean it has to be able to grow and evolve as doors open and other doors close. We can hope our children will live in the same town uh, as us. And if we have to change that expectation because they move away, we can hope to have regular contact with them virtually or on holidays. And we can hope to maintain a relationship with them that way. I mean, this is a lower stakes example, but I still think pressing. I think hope really can be that thing with wings. And hope is eternal enough and strong enough and necessary enough that it need not be bounded on a single clinical outcome or even death. Hope is different for different people. It depends on the age of the patient, the type of cancer they have, the prognosis, what their general medical condition is. There's people that we see that are in their 70s or 80s or 90s. We'll just say 70s or 80s that have smoked three packs of cigarettes a day for the last 70 years. And they get diagnosed with cancer and they say, oh, I knew that. You didn't have to tell me that. I've been expecting this for years. I don't want any treatment. I'm good. Leave me alone. Okay. They hope to avoid treatment that I may have to offer that patient. On the other hand, there's young people with high-risk, high-grade sarcomas that we see in clinic that it's tough disease, tough treatment. They've got young kids. They want to be around for them. They're hoping that they're going to get to see those kids graduate high school and get married. And they will go to the ends of the earth. They will travel to any medical center in the country to achieve that or optimize their chances of it, even though sometimes, depending on the situation, it could be unlikely. And there's people out there that the most important thing if they're diagnosed with an advanced cancer is not how long they live. And they don't hope to live longer. They hope to live as well as possible, as long as possible. And that's completely different. So it's important if people bring up the word hope in the office with me that we define what that means to them. But even if it is completely divergent from reality, respect that. It's something that we can help manage. The other thing that I think doctors and patients sometimes forget is that what we expect to happen and what we hope might happen don't always have to be the same thing. We do this all the time in our regular life. We wake up maybe 30 minutes later than we intended to, but we can still hope that somehow we can make it to work or get the kids to school on time. And sometimes we do, and sometimes we don't. We may expect that, okay, we're going to be late, but we can always hope that maybe we can make it work. Again, a lower stakes example, but there is absolutely nothing wrong or inconsistent or dishonest about having an expectation that's grounded in reality and hoping for better. We, we do that all the time in many aspects of life. So we need not force people into hoping only for what 
we reasonably expect. I would never either confine my hopes or anyone else's hopes to that. And I think as Brian said so well a moment ago, hope is a very individual and personal thing. It has to be defined clearly, and we have to be careful in assuming that, that hope means always must mean the same thing to to different people. But you hope that on that next scan or that next whatever, that there's been this sort of miraculous response that's just probably not going to happen. But you hope that it's going to. I think we all do that. It's just being part of being human. Every now and then we get pleasantly surprised. More yeah. common things we hear and that we see is, I hope I don't have pain. I hope I don't suffer. And most importantly, or most commonly, I hope I am not a burden on my family. Those are the more common hopes people have when they're dealing with an advanced cancer. Those three things, not, I hope I can cure this. Uh, there's patients out there that, that will say that, that believe that, but those are more common hopes. I hope I have a good death. I hope I don't suffer. I hope I don't burden my family. I hope they'll be okay. These are all things we can address more easily and more completely and more appropriately than we can address hope to cure an incurable cancer. And that's the bread and butter, really, of what we do. It's not the the exception of the patient that just will not admit or understand that their cancer is not curable. Couldn't agree more. Michael, Brian, it's a pleasure talking with you today. I hope this was an enjoyable session. Thanks for joining us on Cancer Covered. Please let us know what you think by leaving a review. To learn more, read our blog, request an appointment, search available clinical trials, or even apply to become a member of the team, go to gboncology.com.